0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. I'm your host, Julia Koblinska, and today I will be talking with Margaret Hillenbrand about her new book, On the Edge, Feeling Precarious in China, which was recently published by Columbia University Press. The book examines the negative cultural forms that have emerged in response to China's exclusionary contemporary socioeconomic system. Hillenbrand considers the social strain exerted on members of the underclass, that is, the 300 million migrant workers, whose toil has underwritten China's economic rise since the passing of the command economy. Hillenbrand describes the socio-legal condition of disenfranchisement, an internal displacement or civic half-life experienced by marginalized workers, as zombie citizenship a purposefully inflammatory definition that evokes both the workers' experiences of civic suspension and their class others' fears of falling into similar abjection. In this compelling narrative, contemporary Chinese social, legal, and cultural life is wrapped in an ambient mood of jeopardy. Through close readings of diverse texts, performances, and films that both amplify and diffuse the violent conflicts of dispossession and dislocation, our author makes the case for culture's capacity to, quote, intervene palpably in social experience. The cultural forms Hillenbrand introduces and analyzes themselves teeter on the edge, on one hand the edge of exploitation and on the other of aesthetic empowerment. The ugly feelings these works evoke affectively concretize the ever impending dissolution of that apparent boundary between those who are already on the cliff's edge and those who may yet come to share this precarious space. I look forward to probing the complexities of this freighted and violent cultural work with our guest. Before we move on to the interview, I would like to introduce our guest. Margaret Helen Brand is a professor of modern Chinese literature and culture at Oxford University, where she is also a fellow of Wadham College. Her research interests focus on literary and visual culture in 20th century China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Japan, especially cultures of protest and secrecy. Her research for the book we will be discussing today, On the Edge, was supported by a British Academy Mid-Career Fellowship and a Leverhulme Research Fellowship. She has previously published Negative Exposures, Knowing What Not to Know in Contemporary China, which is covered in a New Books Network interview. Prior publications include the books Documenting China and Literature, Modernity and the Practice of Resistance, as well as numerous journal articles. We will hear more about her forthcoming research at the end of our interview. Welcome, Margaret. Thank
0: you very much, Julia, for that very kind introduction. It's really wonderful to have this opportunity to talk about my book with you today and to answer your extremely probing and interesting questions.
1: We are thrilled to have you. But before we begin talking about your new book, we generally ask our guests to tell us about their personal history um, with this discipline, which in this case would be Chinese studies. Uh, You've already answered that question in your interview about negative exposures. So I want to take the chance to shift the focus and ask instead about your relationship to the discipline of Chinese studies um, and whether it has shifted since that last interview. Are the parameters of your this discipline and your own identity as a scholar changing? And if so, in what ways? That's a really great question. When I did that earlier interview
0: with New Books Network, it was early 2020, so lockdown had begun in the UK and in many other places. But it was pretty impossible to predict to that point what the impact of the pandemic would be on China, and I guess by extension Chinese studies, and also how the interaction between politics and the pandemic would shape access for people working in that field. And talking about this with you now, it's, I guess, just as impossible to deny that contemporary Chinese studies as a research area remains in a state of major flux. And I don't think I need to reiterate the reasons for that here. People in the field all know what the new pressures and new limitations are. But I think we're still working out what they might mean for us as individual researchers with our own subject matter, our own methodologies, preoccupations, so as someone who works with texts and artifacts, rather than say, conducting ethnographic field work, it seems, I think in one sense, quite feasible for me to carry on in the way I always have in the past. But I also think that the work that so-called text people do in contemporary China is always heavily inflected by the conversations that we have with practitioners in China. And that side of things still feels a bit ethically delicate to me at the moment. Um, And also for me, someone who's always passionately wanted to work on the contemporary period. there's an equally existential question, and that relates to what kind of cultural production is going to emerge in China over the next few years. Will it be as reflective of people's thoughts and minds as it was, say, 15 years ago? And if not, what might be the best way for researchers, wherever they're situated, to get a handle on it? I know that there was a real surge of interest in diasporic Chinese art and literature during zero COVID time. But people in China are, of course, going to continue to create vital cultural forms. So I think the challenge will be how to access that culture as fully as possible and how to analyze it sensitively and insightfully now that China has become
1: less open. So turning from these questions, which are important ones for our discipline, um, to your book project, which, which I think engages already right with some of these uh, ideas that you've just brought up. How did you come to this book project and what are its stakes? Well, the idea for the project first came
0: to me about 10 years ago when I was teaching the cinema of Jia Zhangke and watching films like Still Life and 24 City with my students. I got very interested in how Jia uses really prosaic workaday objects in his films as a way of tethering his characters to a very volatile and anxious present. So these items, things like packets of tea and so on, they seem to function as amulets against uncertainty within his films. They're really mundane, but they're also somehow momentous and precarity as a keyword had become really crucial in many places globally in the aftermath of the 2008 crash, and it struck me that Jia was really the poet of the precariat in China. He was finding his cinematic idiom for what it meant to live on the edge. But I also noticed at that time that precarity just wasn't a term that people were using in connection with China at all, even though China's leading cinematic auteur was busily creating this extraordinary filmography about precarious experience. So when I started working on the project in earnest in 2017, my point of departure was China's late arrival on the scene of precarity as a field of study. And I've come to the conclusion that this delay didn't happen because China is less precarious than other places, but because its experiences of precarity actually force, I think, a kind of renewed reckoning with what that term means and does. And with that in mind, and to get to your your Core question about the stakes of the book, I think the core question it asks is, what does it mean to feel precarious in China? And getting to grips with that question means thinking about China's underclass as a social presence, as a political threat, as an effective force, because I think this underclass is where the Chinese experience of precarity really begins. As a state of being, precarity is very closely linked to disposability, to casualisation, inequality, workfare rather than welfare and so on. We're all familiar with these points. But China's underclass, which is stymied by the twin regimes of hukou, household registration, and sujia human quality, I think these are terms that people listening to this podcast probably know. They've endured much more, much worse than this. And here I found the work of Saskia Sassen on expulsion really helpful. Sassen basically expands expulsion from something which is spatial, uh, territorial, if you like, into a far broader frame of reference. So people who suffer life-changing workplace injuries people who endure hard grind but have their wages denied, people who are forced by rental prices to live in shipping containers. These are people who are experiencing expulsion in our contemporary moment, even if they actually remain locked in physical place. And from this idea of expulsion came the two linked concepts which link, which shape the book. The first is the idea that people who are expelled like this In a nation whose constitution professes to protect the rights of workers above all else, these people exist in a state of what I call zombie citizenship, as you mentioned earlier. They're chained by toil, but they're simultaneously cut loose from the safeguards of the law. And the second idea, which follows from the first, is the fear of tumbling into zombie citizenship. And that fear menaces not just the select few, but the many, even those who at first sight seem a lot more secure. So this fear of a life without core rights looms like a cliff edge. Um, This idea, this notion of the precipice as a source of fear, as a source of strife, is the second conceptual tool I use in the book. I argue that zombie citizenship has brewed social strife during the period I explore, which is the first two decades of this century up to the pandemic, and that culture is where this tension breaks cover. I look at a range of aesthetic forms through which people who are living on the edge vent their fury, dread distrust and contempt. These are dark feelings. These are dark feelings which are basically taboo in China's so-called harmonious society.
1: Great. So um, we've you've addressed my next question, which was about precarity. Let's move on to another P word, which is post-socialism. In conversations with fellow scholars working on China, I've recently encountered that there's more and more ambivalence about this term that we used to take for granted. Um, The sheer number of academic books that include the term post-socialism or post-socialist in their titles could probably fill a small library. In your own work, especially in relation to this idea of precarity, uh, post-socialism is a kind of problem and certainly not a straightforward framework as it has been used in much past cultural criticism of China. How do you think this term should be understood?
0: Well, I completely agree with you, both about the prevalence of this P word and also the sense of ambivalence which now surrounds it. I think for a while, prefacing the term post-socialist to China actually marked a real intellectual effort to register the nation's long goodbye to its revolutionary era. And that's precisely because the prefix post never just means after. And as you say, there's a great deal of very meaningful work done on this dialectic between continuity and change that's captured in that prefix post. But it seems to me that as time has passed, the term post-socialist has lost some of that sharp self-reflexivity it had earlier. And now it's morphed into a term that that um, is a sort of a blurry descriptor, more or less coterminous with the word Contemporary. So you get this word, which was once really very nuanced, becoming a bit axiomatic, or looked at another way, studies of other states, other places, they don't seem to require this automatic epithet in quite the same way. And that makes me wonder if adding the term post-socialist to China is a way of both marking out China's exceptionalism at the same time as wishing for the end of that state. Either way, an inevitable offshoot of this is that the term post-socialist as a sort of knee-jerk descriptor of China, the, the offshoot is the other things that China is and does get eclipsed. And my particular interest in "On the Edge" is the way in which China's post-socialist status has partly led China's precarious condition to escape the interest, the sustained interest that it deserves.
1: Um, so, speaking of this precarious positioning of many people in contemporary China. Um, and the ruptures of continu- and continuities with the semantic parameters of Maoism, um, there's something happening with language that is used to describe class. Right, the term class itself or zhi um, isn't used, and it's been refla- replaced with more euphemistic and, I think, more pernicious concepts so like quality and stratum, which it would be diaozang. Um, and in addition to this nomenclature now used to refer to these so-called lower classes, you also consider the differences between terms that valorize labor, like laodong, and the ones that look down upon work, like dagong. So there's also an absence of struggle uh, related to labor and labor conditions, but a persistence of speaking bitterness, uh, again, a Maoist term that isn't surprising, I suppose, given the labor conditions, How does language police the distribution of the sensible, Um, to quote Ranciere, who is also present throughout this text?
0: I think that's a fantastic question. And it really ties in with the idea of of why China is in some ways a paradigmatic case study of precarity. Um, Class is is a really nervy topic. It's something that people feel really acutely aware of everywhere. And this natural nerviness gets ramped up When the language of class is then actively policed by political forces. And in my book, I quote Lin Chun's claim that the current taboo on the term jieji or class is, um, quote, a titanic act of symbolic violence on the part of the Chinese state, unquote. Now, in some ways, that reads like quite a hyperbolic claim. But I think it makes really solid sense precisely because it recognizes the enormous power of language. What we see in contemporary China is essentially a semantic double whammy around class. So on the one hand, a caste system has emerged, which is so egregious, really, as to have been likened by some commentators to social apartheid. But this situation can't be described in the standard subject appropriate language, which is the language of G.D., because that term triggers memories of the socialist past, in which violent class struggle was the mantra of the day, even though this is really very ironic, Chinese society was unusually egalitarian at that time. So instead, as you said, we get this new coinage, jietzang, or stratum. And under its aegis, class divisions that are blatantly obvious somehow miraculously lose their divisiveness. So we have a distribution of the sensible, to use Ranciev's phrase. A set of rules about what's possible and not possible to say, which is rooted in deep cognitive dissonance. I also find it really interesting that jie ceng, as a term, is supposed to wipe clean all the heat and dirt of interclass tension. While this slippage from laodong to dagong goes precisely the other way, it sullies the experience of labour which was once valorized and is now casualized. And I think we get a similar rhetorical semantic move in the disappearance of struggle and the persistence of speaking bitterness. So the first of these suggests the patent potent agency of the working class subject. But the second speaking bitterness, assigns that subject the role of a kind of plaintive petitioner, someone who's dependent on an audience. And this sort of policing of language, it becomes part of the experience of precarity. It creates a distribution of the sensible in which semantic disinformation heightens the sense of uncertainty and unease.
1: So... In addition to Ranciere, um, with whom you engaged to do this linguistic reading, right, of um, what is sayable in China, your book also engages with a slew of recent theoretical writing in various disciplines. But one of your most important interlocutors is the late Lauren Berlant, who wrote, of course, about late capitalism in the United States. What is the comparative value of engaging with Berlant and moving the conversation beyond the scope, you know, of various terms in Chinese that either devalue or add value to um, discussions about post-socialism?
0: Well, I think there are two main ways in which Balance work carries comparative value for China in particular. And the first relates to the intersection between Balance core term, which is cruel optimism, of course, the notion that your heartfelt desires are actually the cross you bear. They're the obstacle to your flourishing, as Balant puts it. And um, and this intersects with the experiences of migration in China. Now, Balant, as you say, was writing of late capitalism in the US. And so mass internal migration doesn't shape the coinage of that term. But China, as a case study of cruel optimism, puts this notion of beware what you wish for within the context of vast territorial displacement. So it radically localizes Balant's idea. So, for decades now, internal migrants in China have been trekking to cities at the behest of cruel optimism. They've been leaving behind kith and kin, all that's familiar, to enter urban environments that are often quite literally cruel to them. So putting Balant in comparative dialogue with China shows both the portability of cruel optimism as a concept and also what you might call the site-specific intensity of precarious experience in China, the degree to which China's experiences of mass internal migration, coupled with its differential citizenship regime, can make hope
1: even more painful, can make hope even more pernicious. Thank you for that. So I think we have a good grasp of the theoretical uh, and conceptual stakes of your book, and we can move into the body chapters now to give our listeners a sense of what uh, pleasures they can experience when they read your book, albeit I'll qualify that um, intellectual pleasures, let's say. Uh, Each one of the body chapters deals with a different cultural practice and what we might call the aesthetics of disgust. Um, personally, I was most troubled by the performance art that opens your first chapter, um, that is delegated performance. What is this practice? Uh, you suggest that it can potentially, quote, reify precisely in order to discuss reification, but can also slip into, quote, exploitative work. How so?
0: Well, this is the chapter of the book that I also found most unpleasant to work on. In it, I look at a practice of performance art that emerged around the turn of the millennium in which avant-garde artists were recruiting members of the underclass to perform within site-specific installations. And these performances have a really distinctive dynamic. So the artist is typically male and charismatic, and he tends to preside masterfully over an aesthetic scene in which you get subaltern performers being choreographed into some kind of degradation or humiliation and the art critic Claire Bishop calls this sort of art delegated performance and she argues that the bad feeling it stirs up can teach us what's wrong with our societies. so it can rarefy precisely in order to discuss reification as she puts it but I didn't find that that argument really held up at all in the performances that I looked at what I saw was actually reification for its own sake What I saw was artistic scenarios in which the dark feelings unleashed by precarity just run amok. They're uninhibited, they're unchecked. Artists deliberately harm or slight their disadvantaged subjects in these works, and I think that's why these artworks, several of which are actually by very famous art world figures, have basically been passed over by most commentators, they're just too awkward but they also pull back the veil. They're spaces in which artists' own fear of the cliff edge is deflected brutally onto class others in a social world where direct protest against the actual architects of social harm is is stifled.
1: So if the first chapter introduces this quite hard-to-redeem practice, the second offers a bit of hope. We see waste art and we see the dump um, as a formation that applies pressure to the distinction between personhood and objecthood in the work of several artists, as well as in the artistic practice of migrant workers and specifically a young girl in the film Plastic China. Why is waste a particularly potent material in Chinese visual culture? And what is the figure of the rag picker, perhaps rag picker as method, um, and what agency does it bestow to the kinds of individuals who are robbed of that agency in the delegated performance that you write about in the previous chapter?
0: Well, this uh, this chapter was actually the first I worked on for the book. And uh, as you suggest, it was really inspired by Wang Liang's documentary, Plastic China. And this film story of a young girl living and working at a plastic stump who makes art out of waste had a huge impact on me particularly because the documentary makes it really clear that the proximity to garbage that she and her family experience shapes their personhood in almost osmotic ways. So in answer to the first part of your question, waste is so potent in this documentary because it's a kind of node that links expulsion, zombie citizenship, life at the bottom, and precarity in a tight mesh of of meaning. And watching Plastic China then sent me out immediately on the search for other examples of waste art in Chinese visual culture. And I found a lot, far more actually, than I had space to explore. But I also realized quite quickly that Plastic China was an outlier in its focus on actual waste workers, let alone their artistic agency. In almost all the other works I found, the agency of the ragged picker is appropriated by a leading artwork practitioner. And these, these works that they make are really compelling, but they reserve little, if any, space at all for the precarious people who actually process China's waste. Instead, it's artists who are dabbling provocatively with, with detritus. So in a way, these artworks are actually partner pieces to the delicate performance I mentioned a minute ago They're hopeful in the sense that they're a lot less overtly brutal, but they have this appropriative drive and the way that they wipe waste workers from the picture struck me as quite revelatory about the class politics of the cliff edge. Quite a few of China's leading artists who work with waste have actually experienced precarity themselves at one point or another. Like waste workers, some have lived in the perimeter settlements that fringe the big cities. So they've dwelt in the shadow of zombie citizenship. And given that, I think it's very telling that they decline to give space to real life waste workers in their art about the dump. There's a sort of disavowal going on here, which is tensely political.
1: Thank you. Uh, and your third chapter, we turn to textual forms, and you pit the, well, pit, I don't want to put it too aggressively, but your chapters are really constructed um, in this kind of dialectical tension, right, between art that actually does allow for the space for a precariat, member of the precariat to, to speak, and an art that takes over that voice, right? So in this chapter, we have the poetry of Zheng Xiaogong, who is a migrant worker herself or has been a migrant worker herself. Um, and it's pitted against the mawkish narrative forms of a self-help magazine, Migrant Worker Bosom Friend. Uh, repetition is key, a key aesthetic in both cases, right? Both at the level of an individual text, but I think we can also see it across kind of serialized narratives or serial narratives, maybe that's a better term, um, but it's put to different ends. So how does that work in both cases?
0: Well, I thought I couldn't possibly write a book about precarity in China if I didn't look at migrant worker poetry. And so for this chapter, I explored a long poetry sequence, as you say, by the famous, most famous migrant poet of all, Zhang Xiaochian. And she made her name with poetry that really howls from the factory floor about the injustices of hard labour. This is verse which makes itself heard above the mechanised roar of the machines. And as I worked on the chapter, I got really interested in how she achieves this really intense vocality. And I found that there's a repetitive, seesawing motion in this sequence of poems between different extremes. So between hope and despair, youth and decrepitude, joy and toil, passion and loneliness. And this repetition mimics the jarring motions of precarious life. So repetition, in other words, becomes really quite rebellious in Jung's work. But then as part of my research into her poetry, I also ended up looking at some of the journals that were publishing migrant worker poetry in the early 2000s. And quite by chance, I came across a magazine that at first sight looked similar, but turned out to be utterly different. And it's called Migrant Worker Bosom Friend. You mentioned it. It came out twice a month between 2000 and 2012, and it reached hundreds of thousands of workers in the Pearl River Delta. As you say, it's basically a self-help magazine which tried to school migrant workers in, I think, expectation management might be a good way of putting it about their lives. And as a sort of counter case study to the sequence of poems by Jung, I looked in depth at one year's worth of issues. And I found that here, too, repetition was absolutely everywhere. But this repetition was totally different. Issue after issue consisted of so-called tales from life. So, for example, a millionaire from Shenzhen who loses his fortune and gets a job cleaning public toilets and so on. And these class fables, which were actually written by elite journalists, not by real people, they relentlessly repeated the same motifs about knowing your place, about fending for yourself. And so here, repetition was actually about enforcing social compliance it was about the opposite of rebellion
1: thank you i have to say you've really given me some ideas for new research projects um for myself because i can't wait to get my hands on some of these magazines and this self-help genre as it emerges um i think the 80s right like that's when the space opens up for it um and for those of us who are always hungry for really intricate close readings that take apart the form of poetry i really recommend this chapter um it will it will give you um the fix that you need <laughs> uh, so the moving on the cover of your book uh, is an arresting image of a man hanging out of the high, of a high-rise window who is putting on a suicide show. And this suicide show practice takes uh, center stage in your next chapter. It's a form of remonstrance against uh, bosses who will not uh, pay wages, right? So it's a way to get back wage arrears. A worker hangs precariously from the edge of a building until these earnings are delivered, usually in quite a theatrical fashion. And so you note that while initially this was a compelling phenomenon to Chinese observers, it quickly becomes devalued as a show, a performance that's put on. But rather than arguing against theatricality or trying to say, no, no, this is not theatrical, this is real, you embrace the term. What is the relationship between the theatrical and the political? Well, the core of my argument in this chapter is that
0: public protest is political precisely because it's theatrical, actually. So in a kind of riff on the aphorism that the personal is always the political, I think the political is more often than not also the theatrical. And when workers in the construction industry first started to protest against unpaid wages in this way, their actions very quickly drew the attention of political scientists, sociologists, labour historians, and rightly so, of course. But as I studied videos of these protests, their performative dimension began to seem more and more palpable to me. These protests follow a script. They're carefully choreographed. They build a repertoire. They belong within a long lineage of remonstrance. They possess an extraordinary visuality. So all in all, I couldn't help thinking that if they were being performed by more advantaged social actors, their innate theatricality, their skill at creating high drama in the theatre of, the, of the everyday, that would be a really vivid talking point. Instead, and presumably because they're performed by socially marginalised people, they're dismissed as shows via a term in Chinese, show, which is actually quite suggestive of the idea of sham. So in addition to the question of the denial of rights, it's also the matter of how people without those rights are allowed to protest their denial which loops us back round again to the question of tense class politics. And it was with this in mind that I also spend a bit of time in the chapter talking about how contemporary artists in China have explored urban verticality in their world, in their work, and how subaltern cliffhangers, as I call them, how they unsettle the fixed link between high altitude and high status in the contemporary city.
1: Wonderful. Um, Thank you. And I, again, recommend this chapter. I I guess I'm going to recommend every chapter because I enjoyed the whole book. Um, But moving on to the next and and last um, major case study or set of case studies. Um, So this actually brings me to my first encounter with this work, which was at a presentation um, at the Society for Cinema and Media Studies during that first virtual SCMS in 2021. Um, So in the throes of COVID and presumably in the throes of working on this book project. I remember your argument that works like Zhu Shunzi's film Future Perfect, which is a found footage film sourced from outrage video clips on the app Um, Your argument is that this rouses class sympathy, but ultimately deactivates cross-class friction. Uh, I really enjoyed the new element that um, I found in the written version, which is a uh, Tool or this hickish or bumpkinish aesthetic of videos that you consider as a counterpoint to the sanitized documentary form. These parodic short videos emerge after the government has actually already purged Quai-show and the outrage videos that are so um, problematic on that app to censors. So this is a considerably less outrageous output than the initial content. Can you tell us more about what was this app, what it is now? and how this cleaned-up version also actually has um, a critical agency? That's a good question. Well quite sure it got its start
0: in, in rural areas and lower tier cities. And from the very beginning, it hosted a great deal of, of tool content. Some of it really quite no holds barred and gross out. So these were content makers who were eating excrement, who were setting off firecrackers on their genitalia and generally making merry about all things vulgar in order to turn a profit on the app. And this content helped to win the platform, hundreds of millions of users. But unsurprisingly, it also stirred the outrage of people who saw themselves as being higher up the socioeconomic ladder. And they went on to engage in quite a lot of overt online hating, in part, I think, because they were profoundly discomforted by the threat of undercast revolt against social rule by soldier that the, that the app seems to to threaten. So before long, this gross out content also prompted the state purge you mentioned in 2018. And in my chapter on Kweishol and the micro celebrities who seek fame and fortune on the app, I looked at the slither of time between 2018 and about 2021. And this is a really narrow but very revealing window into underclass digital creativity in China at a time of precarity, social tension, and state censorship. During this period, what you get is Kuaishou creatives toning down the earthiness of that tool content. But that doesn't mean that the app suddenly stopped thrumming with social tension, quite the opposite. Instead, Kuaishou's post-cleanup phase saw the emergence of a genre of cheeky skits in which. There are creatives hustling for views by staging amusing encounters between enterprising, so called vulgar folk and phony upscale people who think that they're much better than everyone else. But I think I should finish by saying that quite sure, like everywhere else on the internet, is very much a moving target, and quite a bit of this sort of material isn't available on the app anymore either.
1: I see, and I have to uh, admit to a mistake, um, but perhaps turn it into a productive one. I misattributed the name of the film, or uh, misquoted. It's not future perfect, but present perfect. And the reason I did that is because I had just, uh, when I was writing um, my questions, watched a film called The Future Perfect, which is actually about a migrant Chinese worker much further afield, uh, one who goes to Buenos Aires and is learning um, Spanish. So that's a film I can recommend both to you and our listeners. Uh, but I do think it's interesting to note how many of these documentaries about the Chinese precariat actually feature terms related to temporality. One other um, that you mention in, in the chapter is Disorder, which whose Chinese title is, of course, um, Reality is the Future of the Past, right? Something along those lines. Uh, So there's a real tension, a temporal tension going on. Um, Yeah. uh, But finally, um, as I was reading, I realized that your book is divided, and I think deliberately, not only into chapters, but also relatively short segments within each chapter that are all demarcated with a title. Is this a formal choice that's related to the material that you are writing about? Well, thank you for noticing that. Um, When I first started
0: out as a researcher, I actually used to organize my work quite differently. So I would set out what I thought were the conceptual stakes of a chapter or a paper upfront, and then try to offer illustrations of its argument case-by-case case study in the remainder. But actually, structuring things like this is pretty problematic, because it basically encourages you as the writer to tailor your findings around their, around your premise, rather than the other way around. And this approach it didn't seem right at all for on the edge. This was a project that confounded my expectations right from the outset. It was one in which I found things I wasn't looking for or sometimes didn't even want to find and which forced me to reset my preconceptions. So as I wrote up the book, I wanted to follow an organizational principle, if you can call it that, it's a bit of a grand term, um, which better reflected my experiences in in researching the book. In particular, the process of uncovering materials, sometimes quite by chance or by luck, and following them in the direction towards which they themselves pointed, rather than down the path of a preconceived argument. That seemed like a better way of presenting what turned out to be an evidence-led and sometimes quite counterintuitive project.
1: So thank you for your answer. I repeatedly ask my guests uh, to comment on their formal choices as academic writers. and the relationship between those forms and the ones that we write about. But now winding down, at the end of the book, um, and you gesture throughout the book to utopian rhetoric, but refuse it. So you refrain from saying, this book will show us how art can save China. There is of course promise in arts community building programs, um, a rhetorical gesture that I think you also critique in the book, But you point us to the negative. You say, in conclusion, you know, we want to stay in this dark anthropology. What do we find in violent forms and why are they more productive or useful to us at this juncture?
0: That's a very, very important question. Um, And before I get to it, I think I should say that I do very much want to believe in the power or the potential of art and literature as practices that can build community, that can repair the frayed social contracts. And I think maybe most researchers in the humanities need to hold on to at least some residual faith in that promise. Certainly, that was the vision I had in mind when I began working on this book very much inspired by scholars who've worked on solidarity in subaltern cultural production in China. And by the same token, I'm also very wary of dark anthropology, particularly when its field is China, and when there can sometimes be a palpable current of xenophobic voyeurism in play. But as I put together a large archive of materials about precarious experience in China, so poetry, migrant worker magazines, social media posts, short videos, performance art, documentary film, installations, interviews, all the things we've been talking about, I found that the common pulse, so much of it shared, was not solidarity at all. It was the harder beat of antagonism. And we've talked about some concrete examples of this already. And for a while, this made working on the book quite a demoralizing experience. But over time, I began to wonder if there might be other ways of thinking about antagonism, in particular, antagonism as a highly charged state whose affective opposite is maybe better understood as apathy rather than camaraderie, which after all is also about intensive inputs of emotional energy. And I argue in the book that in situations where solidarity stumbles or when solidarity is blocked, the white heat if you like, of antagonism and its expressive forms, anger, dread, disdain, they can at least affect some kind of shift from atomization, social atomization into states of bonding. And in some cases, this face-off between social others might lead to a stronger sense of in-group identity, like the performers on Kwaisho who come together as they parody the regime of Suju. But in others, it might mean a flare of intersubjectivity across the class divide, And even though that's abrasive, it also reaffirms, I think, at the same time, the power and the meaning that heated interaction with others can can sometimes harbour. So I think in sum, that dark anthropology and the violent forms it uncovers, they actually offer proof of the vivid agency of precarious people. They show that unbridled, undisciplined emotion is actually a justified response to the cliff edge as a fact or as a fear. As I say in the book, dark feelings are creative and never more so than when the right to civic belonging is at stake. Uh,
1: So what a wonderful conclusion to our discussion of the current project. Let me ask you, before we let you go, what is the next project that you are working on?
0: Well, my new book project explores the cultural politics of the face in 21st century China. And as you know, face or mienza has a very long history in anthropological and sociological study as a code word for status, respectability, pride, reputation and so on. But in this project, I'm trying to move away from this set notion of mienza to explore the face as something which is fleshly instead of something which is figurative and in particular i'm interested in the face as a vessel or a conduit a channel through which key forms of biopower flow in china today and i look at three facescapes as i call them which have shaped governance in china since the millennium the biometric face the aesthetically modified face and the masked face And in the project, I want to argue that the face is a place in which power happens and that Spaces of visual culture are both reflecting and making real that process of power. I think it's really fascinating that the face remains so overlooked in social theory outside the parameters of the face, of status that I just mentioned. Sure, there's work by Levinas, there's work by Deleuze and Guattari and a few more recent geographers and anthropologists. But for the most part, the face is still utterly eclipsed by the body Right across the humanities, embodiment really rides high as one of the ruling doctrines of the day in the academy, whether it's gender, race, disability studies, post sexuality, digitality. All of these fields have to intersect with the body if they want to stay relevant. And meanwhile, the face extraordinarily is still by and large uncharted terrain. In social inquiry, and if this is true of the humanities more broadly, then I think it's particularly the case for China, because you've got there this focus on face as social protocol, but it's also combining with a visual obsession with the particular countenance of one person, Mao Zedong, even today, with the result that other ways of thinking about the scape are basically unexplored. So I think, in a fa- in a sense, the face is missing in action. Even as its meanings have multiplied in ways that are quite dizzying in an era of pandemic and protest, surveillance, and surgery, so my next project tries to get to grips with that using a range of visual, textual, and digital sources.
1: Well, thank you very much. I look forward to uh, reading that new project when it is ready for us. Thank you to our listeners and to Professor Hillenbrand for joining us today. Um, Goodbye until we meet again during the next episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. Thank you very much, Julia.